Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, we'll be finishing up our look at Dick's 1975 novel, Confessions of, of a Crap Artist. Um, as we talked about in the previous episodes, this was originally published in 1975, but was written way back in 1959. It was one of the mainstream novels he wrote in that period, um, really between 58 and 62, when he was trying to write mainstream fiction. Um, thematically, it's these novels are mostly about family, marriage, cheating, kind of domestic uh, issues set in like suburban California. And this novel is no different. Um, as we've seen in the previous three episodes, the, the bulk of this novel involves relationship between Charlie and and Faye Hume, uh, a married couple living in the suburbs of Marin County, kind of actually a little bit more on the countryside, but all the dynamics of suburbia are really there. Um, they have animals, they have two kids, um, and their life changes when they run into the Antiel family and they bring their brother, or Faye's brother, Jackie Cedar, the titular crap artist, into their, into their home. Um, eventually, Faye starts to slowly replace her husband with Nat Antiel, uh, this this uh, family they meet. Um, Charlie has a heart attack, spends much of the middle part of the novel in the hospital recuperating from this. Meanwhile, Faye develops a sexual relationship with, with Nat and gradually begins to groom him for a replacement. A lot of the novel dwells on this character of Faye and how she manipulates men, tries to control them, and just that the whole dynamics of that is really the, the core dilemma of the story. The crap artist stuff is an interesting side story in in this novel, dealing with uh, Jack Jackie Sidor and his interest in in pseudoscience, uh, popular cults, fads uh, like UFO cults, Dianetics kind of things, uh, belief in the end of the world, Atlantis theory, all that conspiracy theory is stuff that he is interested in. Although he presents himself as a very scientific person, he is very impressionable by the these various. Um, theories. So that's all that would happen. That's all that happened in the novel. It, it is quite interesting. Um, it's it's not for everyone, I suppose. And if you like Dick science fiction, you'll find a lot in these novels that are familiar in terms of setting and, and feeling and, and theme and character. Um, but obviously, it doesn't have any science fiction elements outside of the conspiracy theory stuff that Jackie Sidor is interested in. Uh, so in this episode, we're going to finish up with uh, the the story, uh, looking at chapters 16 through 20, which brings us to the end of the novel, and then talk a little bit in general about the significance of this book. So chapter 16, that, the climax of the novel really takes place in chapter um, 16. Uh, the point of view of this chapter is a third person uh, narrator, but it mostly centers on the character of, of Charlie. As we talked about the, the point of view narration, there's not one single narrative in this story. Sometimes it's Jackie Cedar, sometimes it's Faye both first person and then sometimes it's a third person um, narrator. Uh, this one is, is focused on Charlie though. So he's uh, getting ready to leave the hospital, finishing his recuperation uh, from the heart attack he had. He knows his wife is having an affair 
And instead of like waiting for her to pick him up, he calls his he wants a factory. So he calls one of his workers and says, I need you to pick me up a little bit early. He doesn't tell Faye. So she's going to try to pick him up the next day. So it gives him time to go to a house and to do some things. He goes to buy a gun. And of course, the reader at this point is going to th- thinks he's either going to try to kill his wife because he, he says he's going to do it um, many, several times or maybe try to kill Nat and Teal. But it really does seem that his target is is Faye. But he arrives at the home and what he be, he begins to kill are the animals. Uh, and these are animals that it seems that Charlie quite adored and, and, and cared for. And this is something that really bothers Jack later in the story is why did he target the animals? But it seems he he's taking it out on, on like the home, on the, the place he lives and, and the life that's there, the, the kind of the facade of, of tranquility that the animals seem to provide it there. Now, when you read this uh, next to a book like Do Andrews Dream of Electric Sheep, which was, of course, written about 10 years after Confessions of a Crap Artist, you know, there, there's got to be some significance to the killing of animals, which in that novel, Do Andrews Dream of Electric Sheep, is presented as one of the great evils that, that one could, you know, could engage in. Here, it's, it's, it's not quite presented that way, but it, it's quite a rage-filled uh, moment as he systematically goes through uh, the, 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 the land and, and, and slaughters the animals. He doesn't kill all of them, but he kills most of them. I think um, the chickens get away or something, but he kills the horse, the ducks, the, the, the sheep, and the dog in, in kind of systematic order. Now, he definitely has more of a plan here, um, tar- probably targeting Faye here. Um, Dick writes, The business of shooting the animals had put him in a state of exhaustion. As soon as he had gotten into the house, he shed his coat, threw the gun down, dropped down, dropped down on the couch, and lay on his back with his eyes shut. His heart surely was going to stop working entirely. He could feel it preparing to cease beating. God damn it, he prayed, keep going, you motherfucker. So it suggests that he wants to keep his body alive long enough to keep going. But he's certainly not in physical condition for this kind of exertion due to his heart attack. Um, and then we get the scene where Faye and the kids come back and they see the animals dead. And we he's just listening to Faye's shouts and screams uh, you know, about the dead animals. Um, he comes out and confronts Faye uh, in kind of a bad shape and... And instead of shooting Faye, because and then people start to come, you know, neighbors and police start to come from the gunshots. He turns, goes into the house and shoots himself. His final thoughts really confirm in his mind that this was all a conspiracy by Faye to eventually kill Charlie, to kill him. He sees it all as parts of Faye's plan. Um, So I see, quote, I see, he said. Yes, I see. Dying, he understood it all. End quote. Um, and right before that, it said a light came on. Instead of a sound he saw for the first time, he saw it all. He saw how she had moved him, put him up to this. End quote. And so everything is kind of confirmed in Charlie's mind in his last moments that he was drawn into this relationship and everything was set up to to lead him to his, his destruction and then eventually the replacement, um, which she has ready, Nat and Teal, uh, is, is ready to replace him after she didn't need him anymore but what did she get out of it well she got the house she got the kids she got the kind of the ideal um, suburban life and this was referred to early in earlier chapters as we talked about last time something nat realized about her is that she does see men as rather expendable she sees uh her goal is really the lifestyle she's trying to strive for not any meaningful relationships now really the rest of the novel is 
is denouement of and the, the consequences of this suicide. So in chapter 17, we jump back to the point of view of, of Jackie Cedar. In fact, 17, 18, and 20, three of the final five chapters are from Jackie Cedar's first person point of view. So we really dwell on this this character at the end. And, and he, his life really changes due to the, the suicide of Charlie. So chapter 17 opens, Jack gets news about Charlie's suicide. He... Um, now he immediately starts to apply his own theories about the world to, you know, to the death of Charlie, um, saying, writing, I did not attend the service because it seems to me, as Pythagoras said, the body is the tomb of the soul and that by being born, a person has already begun to die. The physical attribute of Charlie, which would have made a display in the mausoleum, was of no consequence to a person like myself who is concerned not with this world, but with what is with the real, that is the eternal. Charlie Hume, or the essence of him, the soul, the spark, had not been extinguished. It still existed as I always had, although now we could not see it. End quote. And there's a little bit more on this, but this is just more of, of Jack's kind of antisocial behavior. He doesn't attend the funeral for his brother-in-law, you know, and his her sister's husband because of some weird theory about the afterlife and the significance of, of the body. You know, he seems to like miss the fact that the funeral is more for the living than, than for the dead. Um, so Jack writes up uh, another kind of account trying to explain Charlie's suicide, you know, and connecting it to the, the Faye and Nat affair, which is something he sort of did before when he documented this, this affair and, and, and tried to get it published and at least it got it got spread around through the hambro that kind of weird ufo cult association so it became part of the gossip of the community but now he wants to go farther and actually get this report published but decides to go against it but there's a lot here just about the public gossip of, of it all you know why did charlie kill himself what you know and everyone seemed to already know about nat so this is part of dick's point about the suburbs here is that they're very gossipy really reputation is important and a lot of what people are after is the good reputation, not necessarily the good, the good life. And a lot of people fear just how they'll be perceived by, by others. So then we get the surprise, the kind of twist at the end, and that is comes from Charlie's will. Uh, he prepared the will pretty meticulously before his suicide, knowing he was probably going to die. In fact, he, he thought he was going to die of a heart attack, you know, and the suicide is just kind of speeding along the process. Um, now, the will had, you know, created a trust fund for the kids. Remember, Charlie was quite wealthy. He owned a factory. But he kind of drained the company to create a, a significant trust fund for the kids so they'd be able to go to college and then have that money available to them. Uh, he was limited in what he could not leave to Faye. I mean, really, it seems the goal of the will was to leave Faye as little as possible. He had to leave her half the house. He had to leave her, which was heard by law, I think half the factory was hers by law, California law at the time. But he does leave the other half of the house, everything he can to um, to other people, either to his kids or, in the case of the house, to Jack. He also leaves Jack uh, $1,000 in mental health care if he chooses, chooses to use it. Um, even while he, it's very spiteful in the will, he even gives her only half of a, half the car, half the, the, the half that, that, um, that he owned that was like the one thing he he gave her in the will directly was his half of the car which wasn't was actually something she brought into the marriage in the first place he even wrote in a, a pat, like a section in the will to say that if fate contests the will is unfair which she had a right to do in, in in court that he would release all these documents in proof about the affair so she would ruin her reputation 
as revenge and and make her seem like she was the one who caused the the suicide. Now, Jack just sort of naively moves back into the house thinking he owns half of it and he can't be kicked out. That's true, but he really can't afford to actually stay there and live with them. The mortgage is still not paid off, the utility payments. Faye once says that the cost of maintaining this house is $12,000. Added to that, Faye and now Nat, who's stuck with Faye because his wife left him and he's getting a divorce from his wife. She really has nowhere to go but to Faye. They don't really want Jack living there anymore. And, and the hostility between Faye and Jack really increased towards the end of the story. Um, so unable to really pay for the house, you know, all he really has is that half of the equity, which I think amounts to maybe 7000 U.S. dollars. Now, Nat's sorry situation at, at this point in the story is that he's essentially a, sl- a slave to Faye. And... Um, and it's really pathetic. I mean, it's really sad to watch this. This man, when we first meet him, he's, he's pretty creative. He's got ambitions for himself, a dream. He wants to become a lawyer, get a, get a history degree. He's got a nice wife. And by the time Faye's done with him, he's essentially his, her servant, just running errands for her, taking meetings for her. Uh, basically, probably, he's probably taking his job full-time in the real estate because he's going to have to give up school to maintain this this um, lifestyle. I, I think they get some money from the factory, but it's not enough to really sustain uh, the household long term. Uh, it's it's explained how how Charlie actually drained the factory of a lot of its value to give to create the trust fund for the kids. Um, now they want to buy. Essentially, they they'll offer to buy Jack out of his share of the house. Um, but Jack feels a duty to Charlie. Further than that, he feels that actually Charlie is living in the house as some kind of spirit almost. And, um, you know, and he feels he's got some duty to that, that essence of Charlie that's still living in the house to, to fulfill that will, that, that, that goal of his in, in the will. Um, so Jack doesn't want to move out, but, you know, somehow he realizes they really can't afford to, to live there. He tries to do something about this, though, as we'll see in the next chapter. So chapter 18 continues with uh, the point of view, first person narration by Jackie Sudor. It's the kind of the confessions of the crap artist section. Um, Faye makes a more direct offer to buy him out in this chapter uh, via the phone, not face to face. I don't think Faye and Charlie ever actually meet or Faye and Jack ever actually meet in the later half of the novel. I think they just talk through intermediaries or over the phone. The offer is like a thousand dollars. Up, up front and then like $38 a month. And he refuses this. He rejects it, thinking he has a duty to live in that house. And he starts to look for jobs all over town, hoping to find something that will let him, you know, give him, make, I think it's 500 a month he figures he needs to, to basically have a bear, you know, to sustain his half of the house. And he looks for jobs, but he really can't find anything that can pay. I think the best he can find is like a dollar thirty an hour milking cows or something, which wouldn't even come close to what he needs to support um, the house. Faye's anger towards Jack grows in intensity. It seems she always has some issue with needing to feel angry towards men. If it's not Charlie, it's Nat. If it's not Nat, it's Jack. You know, she's just toxic towards these people in her her family, and that. Um, and that's certainly true of her relationship towards Jack at the end. Um, we get a lot in this chapter about Jack's growing feeling that Charlie's presence is somehow alive and well within the house. Now, this is a rather long quote, but it's worth worth looking at. Um, 
court in, that gets into this this feeling of, of Charlie's presence and, and why Jack feels a need to stay in this house. Quote, in fact, even now, as I sat trying to see a way out of this dilemma, I sensed Charlie around the house and each part of it in proportion to the extent that he inhabited that part while physically alive, especially in the study where he had worked at nights. I felt there the most, not so much in the children's rooms or in their bedroom and not at all in Faye's workroom where she did her clay modeling, her creative stuff. What he hadn't realized was that if he had killed her, nobody would ever have the happy moment again. Think what effect it would have had on the children. Their lives would have been blighted. He himself would have had nothing left ahead of him but death from his heart condition unless he planned to kill himself too. Nat and Teal had g- given up on his wife, his brief marriage to her, and with Faye dead, what would be in store for him? Well, who would have gained? The nihilism what Charlie did is shown in this killing of the animals. That part affected him the most. I had the greatest difficulty in understanding it. Surely he hadn't hated the animals as he hated Faye. He couldn't possibly have thought that the animals had betrayed him, although of course the dog had learned to greet Antiel rather than bark at him. To follow this logic, however, he would have to kill his own daughters since they both liked Antiel, and he probably would have to kill me since the girls liked me very much. Maybe he planned to. Anyhow, the sheep cared for nobody on earth, and the ducks, to the extent possible with their limited minds, kept the loyalty to him. After all, it was him that built their pens. After thinking over steadily, I came to the conclusion that he had not known that he was killing the animals, that he had only been conscious that when he got back to the house after being in the hospital, that there would be some great change which he himself would bring about, and then this change would affect all the living things there. He shot the animals to show that what he did mattered. He could do something that couldn't be undone, end quote. Um, I fi- actually find this a fairly convincing explanation that Jack here gives. He, he's, he's prone to crazy ideas, but this one seems to make sense. It seems to have some explanation. He feels so powerless in his household, in this relationship, in his marriage. He doesn't really, can't change the situation. The only way we can do it with this, is with this act of violence and ultimately the suicide. And it does change the situation. It, it does shift the power dynamic. And that's one reason Jack feels this need to stay in the house is, is he's part of that dramatic act that dramatic transformation that that charlie in, enacted through his the suicide and the killing of the animals now um on the phone faye previously had said we're going to come visit you um but actually it's just nat who comes so again nat has become just the errand boy of faye faye doesn't even want to meet jack in person and he realizes jack realizes that the world's coming to an end so he'll just he decides just to make the deal. It'll take the money. It'll take the thousand dollars and the thirty eight dollars a month from them on the condition that he can live there till the end of April. Now he's already he's already predicted that the end of the world will happen on April twenty fourth, nineteen fifty nine. So he thinks you know as long as I can stay there during the last month that the world's in existence, I'll be fine. And they eventually go with that deal. Faye still kind of grumbles about it, thinking, you know, maybe. You know, why don't you just leave early? I don't. We don't want to move out and, and, and move back in after a month. But but it, the deal's too good to to pass up for them. They get rid of Jack, um, and so and he accepts the deal that that he wanted. And so they get the whole house is is what the deal is for a thousand dollars and then thirty eight dollars a month in payments until the rest of the six thousand dollars in equity is paid off. And that's chapter eighteen. I think the core here is in this chapter is Charlie's meditation on on Charlie's motives and purpose uh, at the end of his life. And it comes down to just this deep feeling of powerlessness and and doing something in the only way he could. He couldn't bring himself to kill Faye. Um, that's just too destructive, but by killing himself and the animals, he was able to disrupt the the world that he had that had been his prison for so long. 
it's a pathetic act of resistance, but Faye is such an overpowering figure that she's able to to for to to give him only that option. I guess that that's how Jack sort of sees it. Anyways, <clears throat> I talked in the previous episode about how a, a feminist critique of this novel would would see a lot of these images of of the suburban bourgeois woman quite problematic. I won't go back into that, but you can listen to the previous episode where I where I talk about some of my ideas about that. Now, in chapter 19, we, we jump to third-person narration again, and this is really all about the end of Nat's story. It, it opens up with the divorce proceedings. He's talking to his lawyer. His lawyer is prepping him for the testimony he's going to have to give before the judge. And essentially, the lawyer says, you know, I'll lead you. I'll ask the questions, and all I have to say is yes. And basically, he's going to have to lie about Gwen and make it sound like Gwen was a horrible wife when, when she wasn't at all. She, she only started seeing other men when Nat had abandoned her, essentially moved in with, with Faye. Um, she seemed to have been, we don't really know much about Gwen, but she seemed to be a nice person, a pretty dutiful wife. It was really Nat who, who, you know, joined, who, who abandoned her. But he, need, he wants to get a, a court-ordered, divorce and to do that he has to lie and we get this really creepy feeling about just the way bureaucracy works right as long as you say the right things as long as you go through the motions the judge will grant your your request um so he eventually has to give his testimony um and the judge says the judges don't want the lawyers to lead lead in questions so nat's really terrified when he finds that he's gonna have to say it he can't just say yes i agree to the lawyer he has to actually speak out these words but he's able to do it he's been prepped enough to to give this testimony um which of course paints gwen in a horrible light but this really ruins him emotionally he's just shattered by this experience he's devastated both by the end of his marriage the 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 the, the humiliation of having to go up there and lie about about gwen uh his, his treatment of her all of this really destroys him emotionally uh, but finally he's able to get this uh interlocutory decree from the judge which basically says that after a year this divorce will be be finalized and phase when he gets home phase just glowing with pleasure at this because this is what she's wanted for for a long time she can finally after a year marry marry nat that's kind of nat's inevitable fate uh he's though torn up he's really devastated by this and it's a pretty horrible scene to read to put yourself in nat's position because he did do this horrible thing and this woman he's, he's with has no empathy for what he's gone through and what he's been experiencing or, or what that relationship he had with Gwen meant to, to him. It was a short marriage, but it, it seemed it was a, re, a true heartfelt marriage. Nevertheless, it's Faye's just happy it's done, right? Um, now, they decide to take the kids to Fairyland Park, which is kind of like a really junky kind of place. Uh, tourist attraction that has little fairy scenes from different fairy tales, right? Like the houses of the three pigs and, you know, Snow White's castle and that kind of stuff. It's also got like a, a few little rides, like a train and they go and visit that. And then they go, they get in line for this train ride and it's a kid's train ride. So Nat ends up cramped in between these kids, you know, in this small train feeling, he feels this intense claustrophobia. And then he has to like really ponder where his life is at this point. And the metaphor we get here is just of the train itself, right? He cannot see any way of escaping 
attracts. He, he's he, the, his future is laid out for him, right? He's stuck on it, and and that's the situation of so many of Dick's characters, right? If we think of the end of Now Wait for Last Year, that famous scene where the character has to decide whether he sticks with his wife, who's mentally handicapped through drug use and addicted. Um, or does he abandon her, right? And he makes the decision to stay with her, right? Um, the maze of death, the characters who are stuck in this eternal return, right? Not every character in Dick's novels are, are stuck in this way, but a lot of them certainly are, you know, in structures of power that do not give them much freedom, right? And there's this question of how do we find freedom and autonomy within that space? It's an ongoing theme of, of Philip Dick's. Sometimes it's more optimistic, like in Galactic Pot Hero, but often it, it comes off pessimistic. Here, this is actually one of those more bleaker images. Here, the, the, the shackles on him are not of the state. They're not of a false reality. They're not the three stigmata, really. It's, it's fey. It's, it's marriage, right? There maybe it's a fourth stigmata, marriage. What were those three stigmata again, by the way? They're, they were um, alienation, false realities, and, and despair. I think those were the three. Right now, maybe I guess Nat certainly has a bit of despair in this final scene, but once he embraces that, once he he sees that he's on this train and it's going in one direction and there's not much he can do about it, he he kind of comes to terms with that and accepts his his future. But let's look at this 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 metaphor of the train first. This is on page two forty of the Mariner edition that I have. The inevitability of the train's progress, always ahead of them, he saw the track, the two rails, and there was nothing else the train could do but follow it, and nothing else any of them could do but remain where they were, cooped up in this little irregular cars, locked in by wire doors, hunched and huddled in whatever postures they had first assumed. Their knees touched, their heads almost touched, and they couldn't even look at each other unless luck happened to have them facing that way. And yet none of them objected, no one complained or tried to stir. End quote. I mean, just a really powerful description of how, of all, you know, this could be for anything. It could be state authority with work uh you know marriage in this case it's 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 more of a metaphor for marriage in this case but it, it could fit in a lot of other of the themes that dick explores in his his novels um but a page later he just comes to terms with this um Quote, the only fact he realized will be that we are married and living together and I'll be earning a living and we'll have two kids from a previous marriage and possibly children of our own. A valid question will be, are we happy? But only time will tell that. And not even fate can underwrite the answer to that. She is as dependent as I am in that final area. He thought, she could bring about everything that she wants and still be wretched. Out of this I could emerge as the prosperous one, the peaceful one, and neither of us could possibly know. When the train finished its trip, he was riding the platform. He saw the people lined up for the ride. The Cub Scout next to him plucked up his courage and at last waved. Some of the people waved back, and that encouraged other Scouts to wave. Nathan waved, too. So um, that's the end of the chapter, and that's the end of the story of Faye and, and Nat and Teal. They're obviously going to get married at some point after the divorce is finalized. It's just it's an open question whether they can make something out of this relationship, or are they going to fall back into the same cycles? That, that Faye had in her previous relationship, or even Nat had with, with Gwen. It's, it's a really wonderful ending to their, their story. It's a very memorable one. Uh, then we get to chapter 20, the final chapter of the novel. The point of view of this chapter is Jackie Seador again, which of course makes sense. We started with his point of view and we end with it. Um, now he's got this $1,000 from Faye and Nat, and he, what to do with this? Well, they, his their advice to him was, you know, with thirty eight a month and a thousand bucks, you can get set up pretty nice and and 
in the city, get an apartment, get a room, you get to work a job, and it could carry you quite a ways. You could upgrade your life. Instead, he, he kind of fulfills this duty he has to Charlie. Of course, he thinks the world's going to end before the end of April. So he buys replacement animals for Charlie. He, he replaces all the animals that Charlie killed. Um, horse, he even tries to find like a dog that's the same breed and the same type. Um, and he starts to think, you know, maybe Charlie will come. So he waits till the day of, of the final, the, the end of the world. I think it's April 24th, 1959. And he goes around the house. He, he you know, walks around the house consistently trying to find Charlie's ghost. He actually thinks, based on the Bible, I, I think, that the end of the world will be preceded by the rising of the dead. And he's waiting for Charlie to come back. And he never does. He gets a call from the... UFO called, who are also preparing for the end of the world, but they're doing it collectively in a seance and some kind of prayer meeting they're having. And, and they're a bit angry that he didn't come uh, arrive, but he said he had this bigger duty to to Charlie. Um, and then the world doesn't end, of course. And then he has to, you know, come to terms with that maybe he is a little bit nuts and his ideas are a little bit off the wall. And he decides he is a bit crazy, but he also concludes that everyone else is a bit crazy. And it's a, again, this is just like chapter 19, which I think is a great ending to Nat and, and Faye's story. This is a nice kind of sympathetic ending to Jackie Sidor, who, you know, we, we realize is a nut. But compared to Charlie and Faye, you know, that's the point here. Compared to Charlie and Faye, his nuttiness doesn't really hurt anyone. It's not t- toxic. It's just he's kind of attracted to perverse ideas. The worst thing that happens is he wasted some money on on animals that he probably didn't need. He writes, of course, it's unwise to go overboard and blaming myself. I had a theory which couldn't be verified until April 23rd. And therefore, until that time, it couldn't possibly be said that I was out of my mind for believing it. After all, the world might come come to an end. Anyway, it did not. All those people like Faye and Charlie and Nan and Teal were not right. They were right, but thinking about it, I came to the conclusion, after a long period of hard meditation, that they were not a hell of a lot better than me. I mean, there's a lot of rubbish in what other people say, too. There's darn near a bunch of nuts in their own way. Quite possibly, it isn't as obvious as in my case. For instance, anyone who kills himself is a nut. Let's face it, as Faye says. And even at the time, I was conscious of his killing all those helpless animals was an example of the lunatic brain at work. And then that nut, Nat Antiel, who just married a nice girl and then dumped her as soon as he got mixed up with my sister. That isn't exactly a model of logic. To get rid of a sweet, harmless woman for a shrew like Faye? As far as I'm concerned, the nuttiest of all is my sister. And she's still the worst. Take my word for it. She's a psychopath. To her, everyone else is just an object to be moved around. She has the mind of a three-year-old. Is that sanity? And um, that's the story. That's how the story ends. Is with uh, Charlie coming to terms with his own kind of weirdness, his weird ideas. But seeing that as... It's not the worst thing you could be. You could be like Faye. Um, so that's it. So it's a nice touching ending to his story as, as well. Although we don't know his future. He'll probably just end up getting a job and living in town like he had been. He still has some money saved up from, from what he got from that and, and Faye. And he'll have that 38 bucks a month, which will take him away. A, a guy like Jack will hold him for a while. So anyways, I, I like this novel. I, I It's the only one of the mainstream novels by Philip Dick that I read. Uh, I'm, in, I'm, I'm interested in reading the others, although I heard they deal with a lot of the same themes, marriage and affairs and, and, and that kind of stuff. So I'm a little bit hesitant to jump into them, 
with both feet. Uh, but I'm going to try over the next year to get a hold of them and, and read them. And, and I'll come back at some point through this podcast and, and, and give you my thoughts on those, those books. But it may be a lot of the same stuff. That's my understanding. Um, but if you just, you know, I, I think it's if if you want to understand Dick's views on relationships, I think this is this is key. I think it's such an important theme. Uh, so much is made of like the what is real, what is human questions, and they're key to understanding Philip Dick. But there, there there's other big questions there, and I've tried to talk about them on this podcast. Whether it's the frontier or the city, urban planning, uh, work, or, or or relationships, mental illness. These are all important themes too, and and some of these works really fill up uh, our understanding of what Dick was trying to say about these these things. So. Um, Thematically, I got a pretty short list here. This is actually a tighter novel than a lot of his, which which tend to branch out quite a lot. Um, so I only got seven. It looks like seven quick themes. There's there's probably more. So if I miss something, please please let me know what you think I'm missing. Uh, one theme is of course conspiracy theory, subcultures, UFO cults. Maybe that's actually a couple themes crammed into it. But the whole crap artist element of the story. It's very interesting. It's something Dick will come back to in other works, especially the transmigration of Timothy Archer, his last book. Um, but even like, you know, if you take a book like Eye in the Sky, which is dealing with um, like the communist subculture uh, at the time. So there's an interest that Dick here has in alternative points of view, pseudoscience, uh, I do think he's critiquing or at least making having a little bit of fun with Dianetics with uh, Jackie Sidor's uh, UFO cult that he joins up with. So that's uh, that's one theme. It's it, this is a good place to go to 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 explore some of Dick's thoughts on that. Uh, of course, marriage. And I don't really know if I need to say much more about this. This is a book about marriage. It's it's probably his clearest dissertation on the theme of marriage and of course it's it's not very optimistic uh but there's slight glimmers of hope in the end especially with maybe nat finding maybe a a little bit of hope for freedom within the shackles he put himself into but nevertheless it's a pretty bleak view of of marriage tied to that is the theme of adultery uh which runs throughout this story particularly between nat and and fay um we got suburbia here. Suburbia is a, uh, especially the the kind of anxiety of suburbia, the toxicity of it, the the gossipy nature of suburbia, the the ambition to kind of build a house and fill it with trinkets and kids and 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 whatever like appliances. I mean that's Faye's goal, right? And I, you know, you, I, for me, I don't see where you get from that, except achieving those those life benchmarks that have been laid out for you by other people. But, you know, there's a lot of people who, who do find value in, in meeting those benchmarks, whether it's you get married, you have kids, you get your first house, you get promoted at your job, you upgrade your house, maybe get a house in the countryside, get a horse. You know, Faye's gone through all that. And it's all kind of in the backdrop of the story, actually, is her achieving these things. But um, once that's achieved, she's, she's, she's done with Charlie and she has to find something else to, to entertain her. Um, but it's all kind of wrapped up in this criticism of suburbia that, that Dick maintains. Uh, treatment of animals, uh, just hinted at, uh, you know, it's it comes at really forcefully at the end, of course, with the killing of, of these animals. And, and Jack's, you know, puzzlement at why, why Charlie killed the animals. 
But uh, of course, it's going to be something that's going to talk a lot more in other other novels. But we do have animals here, and and Dick's interested in animals, and and we got a whole farm basically of, of animals in, in this Marin County home. We got children too, Ch- like like the animals. The children are kind of in the backdrop, and they're they're just achievements that Faye wanted to to have, right? We but we do through Jack get a window into you know. The kids' experiences, what they thought of their parents, what they thought of their uncle, what they thought of Matt and Teal. So the children, although they're virtually silent throughout the whole story, I mean, once in a while we hear them speak, but they're they're basically silent. But through other characters, we get a window into their their experiences, and I, I think what Dick's trying to say here is, from Faith's point of view, the children really are just part of the structure of the house. I mean, there's as much there's important to her as the refrigerator or the the home or the barn or, or whatever little knickknacks she's, she's collected. But, um, yeah, lots of children in the story, at least, well, two. But we actually come across them quite a lot. And then finally, mental illness. We got uh, all these characters have some mental problems, it seems, and that's the conclusion of, of Jackie Isidore at the end, is that everyone is a little bit crazy. And as I said in other works, such as Clans of the Elfane Moon, Maze of Death. Um, what's uh, flow my tears to a certain degree? You know, in a lot of Dick's novels, there's this idea that it's like the world is mentally ill and and sick. And this is a popular kind of criticism of psychiatry in the '50s and '60s. And I think Dick was very much part of that criticism. And it's it's here too. And right, the final statement that we're all a bit sick and some of those sicknesses are more toxic than, than others. Um, but really what the real sickness is kind of the whole world, the, the society. And I, I think that's Dick's point of view on mental illness. But if you don't agree, you know, let me know what you think about that. So those are the main themes I see in Confessions of a Crap Artist. Again, a really interesting novel to read. It's If you like Dick's science fiction, you may not initially uh, warm to a book like this, but I I do think if you're a a Philip Dick fan, you should try to pick up one of those mainstream novels. And I'll I'll try to read some more of them myself. Um, So that does it for Confessions of a Crap Artist. Uh, Let me know what you think. Give me your comments. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And I will um, think about what you have to say. So coming up next, we'll look at uh, Deus Ere, which was Dick Dick wrote. I think I think it was published in '76, but I'll, I'll double check that. This was written with Roger Zeleny, so it was co-written. It's one of a couple of co-written novels he did. The other was Ganymede Takeover, which I didn't look at. I skipped over that. I, I apologize for that. At some point, I'll come back and, and fill that hole. I think, but we, I will look at Deus Ere, written with Roger Zeleny, which. Um, goes back to science fiction. It's a post-apocalyptic novel about religion, really. So it's it's not one of his best, but it's it's a lot of fun. And it's got some important things to say on religion and, and the, post-apocaly- the post-apocalyptic setting is, is back, which is something, kind of a classic Dick trope from earlier in his career. Um, so yeah, that's it for, for now. Uh, thanks as always for listening. I'll see you next time with uh, part one of, I think, three that I'll do on, on Deo Series. Thanks again for listening. To feel these changes have